All right, so uh, I said last week, last week we were going to be in Genesis, and I was not lying. We are in Joshua this week. Go ahead and turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 2. One of, my, one of my favorite things about this series so far is just that we're going to con- kind of continue seeing new ways um, that people have been <clears throat> broken, sinful, hurt, that sort of thing. So uh, as we um, continue this morning, I just want us to uh, look at another example of somebody who is sinful, maybe in a way that... Uh, we can't specifically relate to, um, but we're going to look at the life of Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute in the city of Jericho. Um, so we're going to talk about, about her and some of her interactions with God's people, and we're going to talk about how God used her and what the results of her being used by God were. So if you haven't yet turned there, turn to Joshua chapter 2. We're going to spend most of our time in Joshua 2 this week. Um, but, but I think as we get into this, I just want to say, the more I think about this character, Rahab, the more I think about this is kind of, to me, the prime example of why I wanted to study this, why I wanted to go through and look at these different character studies, because this is the perfect example of somebody who, who societally, we would say, should be forgotten, overlooked, ignored, because that seems weird that God would be using somebody in the situation that Rahab is in. However, he does. So I'm just going to kind of establish what the scene is in Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 1. It says, And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. Okay, so just to get this, just to establish a baseline of what's expected here. Is prostitution a good thing? No. Okay, if you, if you take nothing else home, I want you to make sure that you heard that I said that. Because that's one of those things that if you, if, that, that if you don't hear me say that, somebody's going to be like, I think he was saying prostitution was a good thing. I don't remember. I, I, don't, I wasn't paying that close. Get that point, that part. Prostitution is a bad thing. Prostitution is not something that we are okay with. But here's the thing with something like prostitution. Here's the thing with something like, I'm saying prostitution a lot. You want me to stop saying prostitution a lot? Yeah. So many conversations. Right, yeah. So here's the thing. It's one of those sins that's so easy, though, for us to point our fingers at and say, that is a bad thing. Just like I just did. I was the example, right? It's so easy for us to say, that's wrong. That should not happen. That should not be a thing. Look at that person who is practicing that sin. That sin is so obviously wrong and offensive to God, it's evil. And you know what? That's true. Again, baseline. It is sinful. It is wrong. It is not something that we would encourage any of you to pursue as a means of finding income. However, the church has always been really good at finding really obvious and public sins and pointing our fingers at them and saying, that one's real bad. Don't do that. Look at that person. They're this kind of sinner. Look at that person. And, and, and I do this too. Whenever, whenever I am challenged, or especially when I am wrong, I am one who likes to deflect. If you push me, I will deflect. I will say, aha, 
you have said this, but look over there, that thing is way worse than what you're saying about me. Or, correct, I did not get that done in time. Here are the reasons that this person kept me from getting that done in time. But, but our temptation as the church historically has been to say, let's, let's, let's say this person is sinning in this way, or, or people like this are sinning in this way, and that's absolutely true. But, but Jesus even called the church out for being that way. Jesus called his people out for being that way. Uh, I'm going to read the most popular verse in the Bible. It used to be John 3.16. No longer is it John 3.16. Uh, Matthew 7, verse 1, is now the most popular verse in the Bible, and I'm going to read the verses that follow it to give a little context. Matthew 7, starting in verse 1, says, Judge not that you be not judged. You've probably heard that one said once or twice. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is Jesus trying to tell the church here? He's saying, you guys are really good at pointing out each other's sins, but really bad at admitting that there's sin in your own life that you need to address as well. And you need to address that sin first. And so I, I just wanted to use Rahab as an example because so often some of the stories in the Old Testament, especially for us, are like, well, let's just not talk about that. That one's a little weird. Like, like the whole Judah and Tamar thing, we don't need to talk about that. Or Rahab, we don't need to talk about, about her situation. Or insert, insert sinful person. Let's just ignore that. Let's just talk about Jesus and the part where he loves you and he's going to like give you baby sheep to herd when you're in heaven. Let's talk about that part. But, but, but instead, we're really good at saying, look at that sin, look at that sin, but we don't, we don't like to address our own. We, we, we have to, yes, I, like I said, Rahab is a sinner. And we're going to see in her story, she's going to even act against an established norm that God said was part of his expected level of holiness. But in doing so, God is still able to use her. And that's, a, that's an interesting fact, and that's something that we need to realize because we're so good at pointing, we forget to A, address our own sin, and B, when we, when we tend to deflect, we're, we're tending to act as God ourselves. Right? We're tending to say, I am judge, not God. And that's what I think Jesus is trying to remind us of. Before you say let's just ignore this person, or let's set this off to the side. Instead, he's saying, know that you are also sinful, just like that person. And once you've addressed your own sin, it prepares you to also be able to address what is sin in their lives. But you're able to come at it from a place where you're on level playing ground, where you're understanding, I am just as separated from God and in need of salvation as this person that I'm trying to serve in this way right now. So that's who Rahab is. Let's see what happens in her story. If you're still in Joshua chapter 2, I'm going to read the next little section here starting in verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me. But I did not know where they went from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went, 
Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she laid in order on the roof. So what is it that she does? She covers up for them. She protects them. But how does she do that? She lies. Again, baseline level of what's acceptable. Is lying a good thing? You're allowed to answer. Is lying something that God said specifically not to do? Yes. So is it a sin to lie? Yes. So is Rahab sinning as she's protecting the people of God? I think so. What does that mean, though? Because she's protecting the people of God. And and as we're going to read in just a minute, God's going to use that. Is that, how, is that how it works to be, be a part of God's plan that, that God's going to use sin and sinful people to accomplish His will? I think so. Genesis chapter 50. I lied when I said we weren't going to be in Genesis. I just realized, wait, we're not going to focus on Genesis. But Genesis chapter 50, right at the end, in verse 19, Joseph has, has, been, has been dropped in a well by his brothers, sold into slavery, eventually rises up to become second in command of all of Egypt, serving alongside Pharaoh, right? And then his brothers, during a famine, come to him asking for food. And he finally reveals himself to them, and they're all like, oh, I think Joseph might kill us. Which, I mean, they were pretty bad to him. But what does Joseph say? Genesis 50, 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I think there's some similarities in the way that God used the sin of Joseph's brothers, where they they faked his death, lied to their father, sold him into slavery in the hopes that they would never have to hear from him or see him again. I think there is some similarity to what Rahab is doing here because ultimately God is going to use the sin of lying that she is going to do in order to protect the people of God and give them a victory in the city of Jericho and begin to give them the land of Canaan. So am I suggesting that you should go out and sin because it's part of the plan of God and he's going to use it for his glory? No. Don't get that. That's not the point. The point is not, I'm not trying to give us free passes. However, I am trying to give us a broader understanding of the way that God tends to work out his plan among his people. The way that God tends to work when he's he's trying to use this broken and sinful body to accomplish his will. And that's that we are still sinful and we still sin. And as we do so, the plan of God continues to move along. Absolutely, we are responsible for the sin that we are taking, but that does not separate things that happen in our lives, the good and the bad, the the right and the wrong, the evil and the holy, from being part of the way that God is moving his plan forward ultimately. And so for us to look at someone who is in sin and lose sight of the fact that God is still at work would be wrong of us. And that's one of the things that I think is so cool about Rahab's story is that even as 
She lives a life that we would say should be dismissed and forgotten, and she continues to act in sin. God is going to use these things to bring about redemption for his people. Let's continue to read, picking up in verse 8 of Joshua 2. Before the men lay down, she came up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you and when you came out of Egypt and you did not and, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us this land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. She became the savior of these spies who were there. And they recognized that God had used her in a powerful way to give them victory that they believed would come. And what we're getting to see here is a glimpse into her heart. Even in the way she's acting, she now sees who the Lord our God is. Who the, the, the actual power living in heaven is. And she says that. Your God is the God. Your God is the one. We see that. Everybody here sees it. I'm the only one who's going to do something about it. I'm the one who's doing so. And, and in doing so, can you please save me and my family? We want, we want to be a part of this with you. Rahab took on the risk, because I mean, she, right, she's lying to the king of Jericho. She's lying to all of the officials. She took on the risk of being killed for the sake of protecting them. Not unlike the way that Jesus would take on all the risk and be killed himself so that we could be saved. There's a whole theme that runs throughout the book of James, which we studied um, in the last year, about this idea of faith versus works, and that our faith is what saves us, but if it doesn't lead to doing things that follow along with the belief that we've declared that we have, if our faith stops at this intellectual understanding of something and doesn't lead to practical application and us living out, then, then it's not real. It's not really faith. Actual faith leads to action. And this was a big, big portion of our discussion as we went through the book of James. And what we're seeing here in Rahab's life is that she's saying, I see who you are. I see who your God is. I understand what has happened here. And I know that you are going to come and that we have no chance because God is on your side. But I'm not just going to say I believe. I'm going to do something with that belief. And in doing so, that's grant them some victory. 
help get them out so that they can go back and report, so that she can basically hand the city over to Israel. Because she knows they're going to lose anyways, but she says, I want to be on your team. I see which side is winning here, and I want to be, I want to be with you guys. Her faith was leading to real action. And in doing so, her faith is leading to her salvation. Her faith and the action that results from it is leading to salvation, not only for her, but for her entire family. What we see later on is that they say, they say, tie a ribbon so that outside your window, because she lived like in Jericho's wall. And when we, when we take the city and we'll see it, we'll know that's your apartment. Have all your family there and you guys get to live. That's it. Because God said everybody else was to be devoted to destruction. But your family gets to be saved. And I think that's so cool because we see that play out throughout so many different points in church history. We've been reading through Acts on Sunday nights. And in reading through Acts, on multiple occasions, you get to this point where somebody has the Holy Spirit open their eyes. They understand, oh, this is the message that I've been waiting for. This is the truth. I want to believe this gospel. And it says... They and all their family believed. The action, the following up of the, the faith becoming real inside of them led to salvation for entire families, entire generations to follow. And in Rahab's life, we're seeing that somebody who could very easily have been forgotten, who was still a sinner, was going to be used by God not only to save and give victory to all of Israel and continue to move God's plan for moving Israel into this land that He had promised them. But He was going to use that same person to bring salvation to an entire family. Father, mother, brothers and sisters, everybody gets to be saved as a result of God working through the life of this one person. And what's so cool is that many years later, uh, in the book of Hebrews, there's this chapter, some people call it Hall of Faith. Like it's just this listing of all these people who had great faith in the history of the church. And, and in this list, it's, it's going through, you know, by faith, Abraham did this, and Isaac, and Jacob, and it's listing all these people. There are, there are two female names that make that list. One is Sarah, Abraham's wife, and the other is in Hebrews 11, verse 31. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. It wasn't just an action that helped them in that, that period, right? It was something that moved beyond just that. It left this lasting legacy, this beautiful demonstration of a faith being lived out, faith being practiced in a way that led to salvation for many and victory for the people of God. Rahab is a perfect picture of why I want to talk about this subject. Because again, we are so good at deflecting or pointing fingers and saying, look at that thing that's wrong. Look at that thing that's wrong. Look at that thing that's sinful. 
And this is a perfect time for us to look at somebody's life and say, that's somebody that should have been forgotten. That's somebody that should have been canceled. But instead, what do we say? That's somebody that God has used who came from a place of brokenness and sinfulness and God gave great victory to His people because of the actions of that person. And God saved not only that person, but their entire family. And I think this is why I want us to be looking at this week after week, because I want our eyes to be opened more and more to this idea. This idea that, that this story, maybe not every specific detail, there aren't many walls that people live in anymore, but I want us to become more acclimated to the idea of seeing not people in where they have been or what they're living like or what sins are present in their lives, but instead I want us to see the potential of what could happen in their lives if the gospel was made alive in them, if the gospel took hold of their heart. And I want us to look at, pick, pick any situation, pick any relationship, pick any uh, issue that's, that's, that's alive and kicking on the interwebs today. Pick any one thing. And then I, instead of saying, seeing the hopelessness of it or seeing the, the sinfulness in it, Imagine what would happen if the, the gospel was infused into that. Think of the places that you have access to be. Think of the relationships that you can connect with other humans. And think about what it would look like if we were in not, 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 not giving opinions, but instead infusing the truth of the gospel into as many situations as we can. There was, I was reading an article this last weekend, and I'm not trying to get into the politics of all of it. I just want to use this, this player as an example, um, because the NBA started back over the last week, and in every game, nearly every player has taken a knee during the national anthem. And the first player who stood during the national anthem was asked about it afterwards, and he said, particular causes that are separated from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ aren't going to provide a solution for anything. The actual solution for any of the issues, the, the real problems that people are wanting to see addressed will only be solved by the power of the gospel and faith in Jesus Christ. And he got this beautiful opportunity to lay out the whole truth of the gospel in a way that was then written up and published all over the place and posted all over the internet. And, and, and I mean, he took what, what I think we would all recognize as a social risk right now when he stood for the national anthem when no one else was to say, I want to see things changed. I want to see things better, but but I can't separate myself from my belief that the only real hope for change is in the gospel. And the more we see God living that, playing, letting that play out in our lives and in the lives of those who have come before us that we get to go back and look at, the more we get to understand how effective the gospel is. I've said this a thousand times. Christianity, the gospel, when, when applied correctly, when applied in accordance with the way this book describes it, 
separate from our opinions, separate from, from our, our, our think tank mentality about how we want to use it. When, when the Bible is applied, it is 100% effective. 100%. When the gospel is alive in us, Christianity is 100% effective at bringing us back together with God and restoring our relationship with Him. And as our relationship with God is restored, that, that, that restores our relationship with one another. And that's the whole point of all of this, is I don't want us to look at the brokenness and, and try to just separate ourselves from it or say, that is sinful, I don't want to be near it, so I'm going to hop over here. No, instead, I want us to look at that and say, that is one more opportunity for the gospel to work. And if we could train ourselves to speak that way and to think that way and to act that way, that there is hope beyond the brokenness that we see and, and hope beyond the sinfulness that we see, and, 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 instead of, and instead of becoming angry when we see somebody who differs from our opinion or says something that, that is offensive to us or says something that is offensive to God, instead of, instead of sitting here and saying, man, I can't stand that person, I'm going to turn that off, I'm going to ignore that, and I hope that it never happens again. Instead, if we feel broken over that person's need for Christ and pray that the, the gospel would find its effect in that person's heart. That would change everything about the way that we as the church interact with one another. We would, we would be less known for the, the Matthew 7-1 judginess that tends to get applied to us probably incorrectly, but applied nonetheless because, because our hearts would be so for other people, so desiring that people would be saved and, and added to the family of God and connected with Him. And it would change everything about the way that we live our lives and the way that we speak and the way that we, we act and the things that we think about. Oh, that that would be who we are as the people of God. Oh, that that would be the answer to everything. The gospel. It seems so simple. It seems so straightforward. It seems so obvious. But it doesn't always seem so second nature. So, so as I pray here, I just ask that we all would take time to, again, think about how that looks in our lives. Are we one to say, that is an obvious sin, stay away from me? Or are we one to say, that is an obvious sin, and that is where the gospel is needed the most?